Welcome to With Purpose, the podcast for people working, investing and giving with real purpose. My name is David Knowles and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is known in Australia for his work with charity and non-profit leaders around governance and leadership development, but he's known for much more than that. He is a very accomplished man, he's had an illustrious career. He is a bona fide legend of the Harvard Business School. He began at Harvard 60 years ago and has spent 50 years at the Harvard Business School. He is an acknowledged expert in nonprofit leadership. He was integral to the establishment of the social enterprise faculty at the Business School. But he began his career very differently. He began with computing. He's contributed material to every major management information systems course at the Harvard Business School since 1962, which was the year courses were first offered. He's also done a tremendous amount of work in China. He's worked for the business school in establishing relations with Tsinghua University in Beijing and has taught there and helped to establish programs at the School of Economics and Management. And he unbelievably has traveled to China over 90 times. Warren McFarlane is a former chair of the Advanced Management Program at the Harvard Business School. He has been involved in many aspects of the school's development activities over many, many years. And to be taught by Warren is quite the experience. I've known Warren now for many years, and it was an honor to speak to him again. I hope you enjoy listening to what he has to say. Warren, welcome to the podcast. How are you? It's great to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. It's fantastic to see you. Normally, I would see you at an airport, I think, but uh, or a hotel at the first occasion. But um, this time we're on Zoom and, and we're going to talk about your, your new book today, Effective Fundraising, the Trustees Role and Beyond. And at the start of chapter eight, you actually make mention of Zoom. So here we are. Normally, it'd take a 24-hour flight for us to have this conversation. It's the first time I've talked to Australia where I haven't been jet lagged. <laughs> I still feel, I, I, and this is almost a kind of um, mea culpa thing, I still feel bad about picking you up one time from the airport and forcing you to go to watch a rugby game, a game of rugby league in Manly. And it was about, I don't know, it was about six degrees and the hard plastic seat was about 10 inches wide. And I think I gave you a, a pie that didn't may not have contained any meat and uh, forced you to have it was a, a great game. Australian experience. <laughs> Hopefully you managed to enjoy some of it before collapsing onto your hotel room bed. Um, Warren, so we're, we're going to talk, as I say, about the book, but I, I also want to talk about a few broader themes and get you to reflect on some of the things you've done with your time here in Australia and the experiences you've had. And um, let's kick off, first of all, with something I think people in the fundraising community here will be very interested in, and that is to say what's happening in the, in the U.S., um, with regard to philanthropic trends and developments and levels of giving? This is, it's, this is actually an extraordinary time in the United States right now. Uh, 15, 16 months ago, you know, as COVID came sweeping across, there was absolute panic in the philanthropic community that schools were looking for enrollments to drop, universities thought giving was going to go down, museums are holding capital campaigns. It was a really pessimistic time. We're standing here now in uh, late June 2021, and it is one of the great periods of philanthropic giving in the history of the United States. That what happened, you know, two things. First, our stock market has roared, you know, up uh, 50 plus percent more. Uh, secondly, it turns out 
that the middle class and above jobs were mostly not really impacted you know, by this. And so therefore the giving uh, went uh, you know, right through the roof. Um, the third thing is that people really valued these institutions more. As a trustee of a private school, uh, we anticipated that um, we were gonna probably lose 15 to 20% enrollment a year ago last March. Uh, in fact, enrollment jumped 30% with a massive waiting list because the public school system, the teachers panicked and said they wanted to stay at home. The independent school that was able to keep open a safe environment and run classes uh, five days a week just absolutely swept the table. So uh, I'm right now in charge of uh, four capital campaigns and each one I think is, uh, is an interesting you know, story. The first one is my hospital that we are doing a $30 million uh, campaign. We're ahead of budget in every way that you can think of. We pulled, we pulled down the requisite number of million dollar gifts as well as the $500,000 gifts. This is, it has been surprisingly a good news story. And I was talking to a group of philanthropists recently in the US and it was just basically you know, buoyant. It was they're hiring people, they're raising money, they're new initiatives that you can see it as we come out of COVID now, housing prices are soaring, that people have been stocking up money right and left uh, in this environment. So you have this excess liquidity on the economy, you have the stimulus coming and philanthropy is able to move right along on, on the back of it. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very bullish right now. So you're very bullish. Um, I don't, I'm not surprised that you are simultaneously running four capital campaigns. I do feel for the people who are pulled in as trustees because they may not always realize on day one that it's a job for life. Even if they leave, they're never really allowed to leave this particular yeah, that's right. family. Um, but uh, that's that's great to hear. Now, you have come to Australia many times and I had the privilege of um, of working with you on um, nonprofit leadership programs centered on governance and mission and things. Uh, in that in that area, um, you saw a lot in relation to nonprofit boards here in Australia and nonprofit board members, and you interacted with hundreds and hundreds of them over the years. We already know there are differences in how we organise our boards, but also how people think about the responsibility and role of the board member in a nonprofit context here compared to the US. What are your reflections on the Australian? Um, uh, non-profit board and board governance um, uh, characteristics that you that you saw when you were here. Let me sort of break it into sort of your, your, your three parts. Uh, the first part is I think that the your the governance for your boards in in terms of helping to sort sort out mission, uh, able to align strategy with mission, able to measure performance, you know, is is very similar. You know, to where we are, that I, I have you know, very good, positive discussions. I never felt there was uh, you know, a great uh, difference. The second thing is that uh, on each of my visits to Australia, you very kindly uh, arranged for me to visit with 10 to 15 different organizations, as well as people. And my point behind this is the Australian leaders are every bit 
as energetic and effective in the social enterprise side as it is in the uh, uh, United States. The boards understand the mission in that area. They picked you know, you know, wisely. They are uh, uh, capable people. The third area is one that we've uh, uh, basically uh, been diverging on. The notion of individual philanthropy is deeply embedded in the American culture. It goes back somewhere into the 17th, 18th centuries, house barn warmings, you know, things of that nature, the community coming in, raising you know, money to help you know, move, move things on. That philanthropy as a part of the, uh, the board responsibility is ingrained you know, in, in the US uh, you know, context. That um, not, always, uh, not always immediately the new trustees understand it, but we will we'll come to talk about it. In Australia, this was not thought about in, this, in, the, in the same way. That, uh, and this is just, it's, it's undoable because you uh, know 50% of a CEO's time is spent fundraising. I mean, half their time is cultivating people going out and they do that, you know, with the support, you know, of, of their board. And I talk about it that there are two very different kinds of, of, of board members. Uh, first, they're the ones who are able to be donor. That's one kind of member. The other one, which is equally important, you know, is the connector. Somebody who can open the door to the foundations has a wonderful Rolodex. And uh, in my book, I, I picked sort of four trustees who I really value. And, and one of them, she is simply the most active connector I've ever dealt with. She's now on the nominating committee of our museum. Her, she ran an advertising agency in New York. Her Rolodex in New York is extraordinary. That her Rolodex in Boston you know, is extraordinary. Her Rolodex in Newport is. And that kind of person who can basically introduce, you know, give a party, phone call and so forth is, is equally important. So uh, that um, you can give in, in many ways. Now, on the other hand, I need other skills. And uh, for my hospital, when I was board chair, uh, my single most valuable trustee was a homeless mother from West Cambridge, her $25 a year was more important to me than the 200,000 that I got from the head of the local bank. It was a symbol of her commitment. And so I've never asked, as I put the board together, I've, I've never asked people give huge amounts of money, but I do expect that it will be near the top of their you know, personal philanthropy. And you know, people who say that as a privilege, that they don't want to uh, give, as a board member, then I can't use them because I must go out and talk to the community that I have 100% participation. Well, well, let's get into that because um, this speaks to the book and in fact, your prior book, Joining a Nonprofit Board, What You Need to Know. So in that, in that prior, previous book, you talked about the role of um, trustee board members, uh, directors as threefold, defining the mission and the strategy that will achieve that mission. Two, select, coach, and evaluate the CEO. And then three, secure the necessary financial resources for the organization. And um, 
you know, correct me where, where I, <clears throat> I'm wrong, but essentially your new book, Effective Fundraising and Trustees Role and Beyond, explores that third, that third um, anchor point, if you like. And this is, as you say before, where we diverge. You argue that fundraising is the lifeblood of a nonprofit or a social enterprise, as you, as you um, call it. And then you go on to say that board members have therefore a responsibility um, to fundraise. And um, you almost go as far, I think you do go as far as saying in the book that if people in certain situations like potentially their contributions, the annual fund aren't prepared to make a financial contribution as, as a board member, then they should resign. So that's, and that's something that Australian board members and trustees find, find um, um, difficult to accept in some cases. They haven't been recruited on that basis and they, they believe that they're there for a different reason. Can you just expand on your thoughts? I think the idea that the, you know, the first thing is that uh, a board in transition, we can do things very different. Uh, that I've got a lot of tolerance you know, for managing the transition process. And I can remember that uh, one of my, I think the last time I was in Australia, I was you know, talking about this and I can remember you know, somebody in Melbourne just working me over hard saying, Mark, this is just you know, absolutely unacceptable that we do not give money as trustees you know, in Australia. Picked up a newspaper the next day and there was his name as having given a $10 million gift to the local university. So I decided maybe he was speaking with a forked tongue and then <laughs> that, and that there was, there, that the people thought they were more different than they really were. Just to the, I'm really interested in digging into the why, the, the rationale for it, because in those two examples you gave, you talked about the process of change, moving towards a board model, um, more based around tr trustees making contributions and helping with the development um, in a direct manner. But I think where we, where we get stuck here is, <clears throat> is um, people are, remain unconvinced or uneducated in terms of the why that's necessary. Why do we have to get to a stage where the trustees um, have that responsibility and role and make that personal contribution? And I, I wonder, when I look at the differences, I. I I wonder um, how it plays out here. So let, let me just bear with me for a second. My view is in America, you talk about boards of 24, 36, and much of the heavy lifting from a fundraising point of view gets done on the board. So the in a way, the function of the board is to fundraise and develop the organization financially. And then a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the work is done at committee level. So subcommittees like the governance committee, the finance committee, that's where the real work is. Here, the real work is often done at the board level, supported by supported by subcommittees. I wonder if it, what I'm interested in your view, if you had a model where you said, well, the board has to do that real work, but also has to be responsible for fundraising. Can those two things coexist? And if so, how? Yeah, I think the question is they they coexist, and it's and it's a question on terms of how the amount of effort and activity that individual board members you know, put on things. For example, you know, that uh, I need uh, two or three really good financial people on most boards. I need a head of the audit committee. I need a head of the uh, uh, finance um, you know, committee and maybe somebody you know, in budgeting and a successor coming along. That uh, I'm not, look, so what I'm looking for is people who will bring that skill level on 
but believe enough in the mission of the organization that they're willing to make a contribution. I mean, it's, I mean, it's almost a, a disconnect. How can you believe in the mission, but yet not actually put a dollar of your own money you know, there? If you aren't very affluent, I don't expect many dollars. And I may, and I, 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 can, I can show you boards where uh, that uh, we have wide a range of giving levels. Most people don't know about it, but each person is there you know, for a different purpose. And at the core of it, they all have to believe in the mission of the organization. And then you support it you know, to the extent that you, that you can. Well, Warren, um, one of the things that I, I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about is when dealing with nonprofit board members here is, is the fact that the role and the therefore responsibilities are very different in the nonprofit space versus the for-profit corporate space. And my thinking is along these lines, again, I'm just interested in, in, your, um, in your much more experienced and better educated view in response. So, so my thinking is this, the responsibility to go out and get you know, financial support and resources for the organization sits with a board member of a nonprofit in a way that it doesn't in the for-profit world because it typically, in a general sense, yep. there is an army of well-paid and well-resourced people working for the corporate who are the board are entitled to expect to go out and do that yeah. job. That is not necessarily and usually not the case in the nonprofit space. And I've I've served on boards where the board outnumber the staff. So it's a different world and the the board simply can't rely on or expect the paid staff to go out and do everything. Um, that, that to me is a fundamental difference. What are your thoughts? Well, the, 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 I mean, the, the two organizations, you put your finger right on what is the key difference between the for-profit and the non-profit space. That the for-profit space, we have you know, financial specialists, we have bonds, stock quotations, a whole variety of mechanisms that you use to basically you'll, you'll bring the thing together. And that the people who are providing funds basically are expecting to get a specific return out of it, a return out of the organization as a whole. In the nonprofit um, your, your space, that when you're giving to the organization, uh, it's to impact the world uh, in some particular kind of way. It's not to make money uh, for yourself. And with that mindset that you're basically uh, giving to try and bring a cause forward, it makes you feel better uh, if the governance organization also believes and, and, and goes with it. That uh, one of the things when you launch a capital campaign in the United States is that we just expect that we have to have 100% of the board sign up for it within their capacity, because that's something that makes a big difference to the donors. If I go to a foundation and say, well, 50% of my board is giving, but the other 50% loves us, but they've actually got some other priorities down the road, that doesn't go very well. So, <laughs> so we get into the amount and so forth. It's a, it's, 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 it's a different environment and it really comes from the expectations of the people who are providing money to the organization. For the for-profit world, if all goes well, it comes back with a really nice return. The share of one of my uh, young relatives has 
her, her father convinced her that she needed to learn something about the stock market. And so uh, she basically, four years ago, at his advice, he invested $100 in an obscure stock called Zoom. She basically believes there's nothing but upward potential, that, that, that the for-profit space really appeals to her. Yeah, well, that was a great investment, no doubt. Um, so you, you say in the book, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but everything related to successful philanthropy flows from good governance. I, I want to use that as a bridge um, to the idea of... Um, board members getting involved in successful philanthropy but just quickly what, what do you what did you mean by everything related to successful philanthropy flows from good governance it's just the absolute heart of the board and it basically the governance committee is responsible you know for understanding the mission recruiting people who can believe and move the mission together people that they think will be able to grow in their commitment you know, to, you know, to the organization. Uh, at the same time, we understand the rules for uh, good auditing, things of that kind of nature. Also understand the importance of raising money. And that means the kinds of people. So the, the governance slash nominating committee is to my judge, the single most important leverage point. If you're on top of that, and you and the board chair and the CEO are in alignment, you can make just remarkable your, your kinds of changes. Yeah, that, that's very useful, thank you. So now I wanna to turn to something that I'm really interested in the context of this conversation and your book. Um, and that is in, in, in my um, explanation for it, how you can build as a board member, how you can build your asking muscle. So let's assume that that people read the book and they accept. Thank you, Warren. I have changed my mind. I'm a board member of a nonprofit. I understand I have a, a duty and a responsibility and a role to play in terms of fundraising in a direct sense. They're then gonna say, well, how do I build my asking muscle? Can you talk to us about the importance of the mindset and what that mindset looks like? Yeah, let me, I, I don't, I'll start back is there are a few individuals who really like to ask people for money. Uh, that tends to be, and uh, regrettably, a rather small number. For most people, it is a uh, acquired habit. And it doesn't matter how successful you are. It is still hard. You know, there are two of the people that I've worked with in the last 15 years, the most catch it, is that uh, Hank Paulson. You know, Hank Paulson was the former chairman of the board of Goldman Sachs, went on to be U.S. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury. As part of his nonprofit activities, where he and I worked closely together, uh, we worked on the advisory board of Tsinghua University, where uh, the advisory board made up of several CEOs from around the world and so forth, uh, basically, uh, amongst other things, provided money for a series of scholarships and so forth. Hank had to go out and ask people you know, for money. And to listen to him talk about his distaste. I mean, you you already thought he was a young mother being asked to make the first kind of thing. That the second one, you know, Steve Schwarzman, you know, the swamp founder of Blackstone. You go out and you read his new book, and he talks about how distasteful that fundraising is. He turned out that from putting Blackstone together, 
something like the first hundred calls he made. He got zero. He has colleagues were thrown out. And only when they got to Prudential at the end did they get the first yes, and then it moved on. That he was founded the Schwarzman Scholars Program. He put $100 million of his own money in it and raised another $500 million. And you talk to him about the joys of asking one's contemporaries for money for a nonprofit. And it was something he did well, but he didn't like it one little bit. And so I put that in the, in the context. Now, the way that I think about it is that uh, most people, when they think of asking people for money, uh, insecurity comes to them and they think they are begging. They see fundraising as a kind of being a high quality kind of beggar. Uh, I have a different view. And the view is that you are providing an opportunity you're providing an opportunity for people to give up support of their wealth, of an enterprise that they believe in, which they do not have the time or the skills to contribute in other ways. So it is an opportunity you know, to move the world forward. And that's why when I, to be a successful fundraiser, the first thing I do is that I have to give. I give until it really hurts me. And with that, that sharpens my conviction. And it's not that I'm an evangelical Christian, but you are basically out selling, you are communicating uh, the belief in a cause. And if you've invested in it, you simply speak you know, with more, more passion that I've got to uh, go to an event uh, you know, tomorrow night and that uh, it will be uh, honoring the uh, retirement of a CEO who I recruited many years ago. The end of my speech tomorrow night and saying beyond her, the thing that we can do most importantly in this room is we are halfway through the capital campaign and that there is nothing that you can do more important to honor this person than to go back and think about what you have done and then do more. Now, in order to do that, that meant that I had to basically do it till I was kind of wrapped around, you know, the axle in, in terms of doing it but it's the ability to speak with force and passion. And when you've taken of the Kool-Aid, it really helps you. Yeah, I totally understand, totally hear, and uh, it resonates with me strongly, this idea of conviction and passion, also credibility, which you touched on earlier. Um, that's my, my way of describing it, but this idea that um, if you're asking others to support something that you don't support yourself, you're in you know, a difficult position and it sends perhaps the wrong message. The opposite is, is, is um, therefore you know, true as well. Um, so that, that's really interesting. But this idea that it's an opportunity and it's an opportunity to, to, to do something that you may not otherwise be able to do because you don't have the time or skill. That to me is a transformational thought. It's very simple. But it's transformational because it turns things around 180 degrees, doesn't it? From something to be feared, the begging um, uh, point that you made earlier, to something that you have to offer. And this, this is talked about um, at the very front of your book in the preface. And just tell us a little bit more about this opportunity mindset and how, how can people become of that mind? How can a trustee develop the belief that they're offering an opportunity? You do it for, uh, if, I, if I start first with one's own gift, 
you know, one of the things is the more you spend time with the organization, the more uh, commitment you have. I remember listening to one of the great, you know, you know Harvard you know, donors some years ago, and he had uh, signed up for, I think it was a $3 million you know, gift uh, to, 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 to uh, endow a certain new, uh, new program. The part of the university that handled him said, we like your money, but we need your time and your energy. And so we need you to be on the planning committee, you know, for, you know, this new facility. And then somewhat further on, he said that we're having regulatory problems. So we want you to be on the regulatory uh, committee that actually has to deal with the city of Cambridge on these issues. And he, he got into this thing. He couldn't believe the bureaucratic things that were put in the way and the strange uh, uh, ramps and so forth that were put in. When it was through, he said that it had actually become a vicarious experience, one that nearly drove him to ruination because the amount of the gift had gone more than fivefold. As you simply, when you get involved, and that's the, that's the thing, when I get my teeth involved in something, the commitment grows. And that of course is uh, the challenge of a development person is to take the prudent person and by involving them until the passion and wanting to move uh, the ball down the field actually you know, gets their philanthropic juices and they want to do something a great deal more. Wrote a paper a couple of years ago, Warren, about the biggest mistakes I'd seen and hope that people could avoid them um, in their philanthropic journey. And one of the biggest mistakes I call drone philanthropy is this idea of doing it, you know, almost send, sending, sending the check in by drone and doing it from a distance. And I think you you miss so much. I, the people I, I know that have given and given in a remote way, um, that they ultimately have walked away. And before that, they've been uh, dissatisfied, if not um, experiencing disillusion. So I, I couldn't agree more. Getting involved um, really gives you the passion, but it gives you that sense of personal satisfaction too. So it should be the more you're involved, you know, the more you, in fact, want to commit. And this is where some people make a big mistake because they move for one transaction, they move for the big kill. And I learned quite early in my years that sometimes you simply have to back off, say, we've done it for now, and then we come back. And five years and 10 years, uh, 15 years later, you know, things become you know, possible. But uh, these are our, our lifelong relationships if, if they're put together correctly. Yeah, thank you. All right, a uh, couple more questions as we look to um, to, to finish up. Um, we can't go past the idea um, of the importance of the mission. I know that you're now talking about the financial resources in your latest book, but uh, much of the work you've done here in Australia has been um, related to mission, the mission of the organization. And I, and I just want you to just spend a couple of minutes um, explaining to people that haven't heard it before why you're, you so passionately believe that trustees and directors of nonprofits must um, make their one of their very highest priorities the deep, what you call deep internalization of the mission. So, not a rote learning of the mission, not a casual acquaintance with the mission, um, but this deep internalization. 
it really is, it's the whole reason for being of a nonprofit or a social enterprise. It's not to make money. It's to basically move the world forward in some way or another. You know, from our museum, our, we're trying to basically communicate of a way of life that was where we came from a century and two centuries ago. And the interesting thing, of course, is we are now having to go back and completely redo it because big pieces of our history were left out of history books, exhibits, and so forth. So it's an ex I mean, it's one of the most intense diversity-oriented organizations I'm involved with now as we're coming back and filling in the gaps, you know, that weren't there. You know, for a hospital, the purpose is to save lives. And we are always looking, you know, for what kinds of new treatments, what kinds of new facilities you know, can we bring that will be able to take care of that particular kind of mission. And that, uh, far way back when, when I was in the, on the hospital board, I love Harvard MBAs. I think they're just terrific board members on their second board. But the first one here is that when I when I bring an Harvard MBA onto the board, people say, "Won't you put it on the finance committee?" I say, "Absolutely not." Off they go to the medical affairs committee. That is the case for all cases of malpractice are heard. And I always have two senior and two junior trustees on it. The junior trustees were to learn the purpose of the organization is to extend lives, to save life. And when you've got that, then you can serve usefully on the finance committee. But if you don't have that intuitive understanding of why you're there to temper the rest of your discussions, you know, everything else can get just absolutely you know, skewed wrong. So that, uh, the, that the discussions of mission, we talked about it when I was in Australia, you have to do it continuously because you bring on new board members. Things that you thought you'd agreed on in the past you look around and a third or half the people are gone from those discussions. So it's not, ju it's not just uh, um, doing it once, but you've got to keep it alive because the board changes and because the world changes. That there are things that you may want to do, but that they are in fact gone. My uh, uh, two oldest children came from an adoption agency. There were six adoption agencies in Boston back in 1964. There's a quarter of one left. The whole way of thinking about this has turned absolutely you know, inside out. And so they had, had to change, reorganize, move on into other missions. You know, the world has changed around them and that's hard. And that's where you need you know, board members who are creative, who are alert, who are willing to deal you know, with the reality in front of you. I think it's it's so important. Thank you for explaining that. I, I actually think it has um, particular resonance here in Australia because since um, about 2008, we'd call the GFC, I think you call, correct me if I'm wrong, the Great Recession. Um, we, we've had a big influx of um, people from the financial sector, the corporate financial sector, coming in to nonprofits and bringing their skill set. But I think it's really, really important that, that they don't operate in a vacuum and don't, for example, look after um, a surplus or an endowment uh, for the organization in a way that doesn't at all times 
consider why that money was raised and what it's there for, which is the, the mission, obviously. So, so thank you for that. Um, just finally then, um, the title of this podcast series is um, With Purpose. And you've, we've, we've touched on it lightly, but I just wanted to invite you to kind of talk about your own life with, with your um, academic ability and your, 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 your brain. You could have done many things, but you've chosen a life of purpose and that's with your day-to-day -day work but also with your commitments outside <clears throat> work why why is purpose been or how has how has it been so important to you and, and why i think your 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 purpose is it, it it's it's a it's a driving factor of people's uh, your lives and that uh, i was at a uh, uh, church retreat this 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 weekend and uh, the director was talking about how he had just been to a hospital that asked for an Episcopal priest for somebody who was in the process of passing. And he was talking about, you know, the discussion this person was saying, he said, you know, that uh, yeah, there were a lot of things that in his life he'd done well and he hadn't done so well, but that he'd wished that he'd spent more time giving to the community more time you're with his family. You know, those are the fundamental values that making money, creating products, services, and so forth. Those are wonderful, those are exhilarating kinds of things. I've en I enjoyed my for-profit boards and I spent a lot of time on it. For my nonprofit boards, it was quite different because it was something where you were giving back and being able to shape the community in a way consistent with a set of, 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 of core values. And I think that's really what distinguishes the social sector, why we find so many of our alumni are willing to give uh, not just uh, time as board members, but as heads of uh, these organizations where the compensation levels are quite different than that of their compatriots mm -hmm. in investment banking. But it is a deep belief in the core, in the purpose, the values of society, and hoping to leave the place a better uh, place. And that really is why all the work that's being done, you know, climate, uh, community relations, all those kinds of social enterprises today uh, are really attracting some very able people who for purpose want to make a difference. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, I mean, if I try crudely to, you know, summarize that it's it's better for the world. It's better for your community. It's also better for you. That's you can sleep better with yourself. That's exactly. Yeah. You yeah. Sort of, when you keep score at the end of the day in life, why uh, that uh, those are the things that uh, that, that, that you remember. Then I've only mm -hmm. told Spanish. I've heard that story a hundred times, but just having heard it, you know, twenty four hours ago, mm. you know, again remind me. Yeah, but uh, and we haven't mentioned the word yet, I think, but um, fun as well. Uh, I've heard you talk several times and it's in the book, uh, at least a couple of times in the book. That it's not just about the tally at the end and the conscience. You actually enjoy it. You get satisfaction from it and, you, and you've derived a lot of fun by being involved in um, trying to solve and move forward um, issues in, in the community space. So I, I think you, prob you probably got a, a, a lot of pleasure and, and satisfaction out of it along the way, Warren, haven't you as well? Absolutely no question. I think one of the pictures that comes back to my mind with a bitter end to it too, is I remember a uh, when I was my very first school board that I was ahead of, and that uh, 
we recruited this you know minority family and and i'm a morning person so that uh head and i are uh, not at his fellowship but we always met from 6 30 uh to uh, eight o'clock in the morning i bring in the coffee on uh, on on monday mornings and uh i'd, I'd walk out the, at the end of the meeting and these kids would be just pouring in and I can remember this little guy just banging into me just filled with purpose on his way uh, to his kindergarten class and always uh, really felt you know very good about it of course I didn't feel so good when he died of a heart attack on an athletic field you know in eighth grade but uh, I mean uh, I've had many many business things but those have evaporated from my mind but those kinds of contacts, those kinds of roles, that's what, uh, what, you know, what, what you remember. Yeah, well, that, that seems like a fitting place to end. And uh, we should, I think, because you've just reminded me you're a morning person. And of course, uh, I'm here in the morning, but unfortunately you're, you're going into your evening. So I should let you enjoy uh, the end of the day. But I, I just have to say, it's been um, fantastic to talk to you again. I mentioned to people that I was doing this, people that know you and have met you previously on your trips to Australia. And, you know, without exception, their faces, uh, you know, lit up and they were just so happy to hear um, that I was going to be talking to you. And that just that memory of uh, the time they spent with you, you know, clearly just gave, gives people a lot of pleasure. So you, you've done an enormous amount of work here to, um, to try and borrow one of your phrases to move things along over many years and um wanna, i want to thank you and thank you on behalf of some of those other people for everything you've done here in australia so far uh when you finish those four capital campaigns maybe you'll be back if not you'll be on zoom by the sound if, of you'll, if you'll just open up the country absolutely the meantime, yeah. i don't i don't miss the 24-hour flight to get to you no ab absolutely not but uh be careful then if we do open up the country the invites might start to, to hit the inbox but um Warren, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Um, congratulations on the new book. It's effective fundraising, the trustees role and beyond, and it has huge value, particularly here in Australia, I believe. So thanks again. All the best. Thank you very much, David. See you soon. Bye-bye. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codecapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.